folks, welcome back to the podcast. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, coming to you from the lower level of the Behavioral Sciences Unit, Higher Things Headquarters, New York City, New York. We infiltrated New York. We infiltrated. And uh, as always, uh, Pastor Christopher Gillespie is in charge of, what are you in charge of? Uh, well, coffee roasting. Coffee roasting. I guess I push record. You push he record. Keeps us, he keeps us alert and makes sure that the podcast gets up. Online. Yeah, balanced and uh, dynamic. Balanced. Yeah. <laughs> I also fix all the times where we interrupt each other, so you don't even notice. There, there we go. That's good. It sounds like like this, like it's slick and produced, and uh, it really <laughs> it is, isn't. <laughs> it is produced. It is produced. <laughs> it is produced. Uh, slick, slick, mm. slick and mm. <laughs> subjective. Well prepared. Uh, Oh. <laughs> well prepared. This is a well-oiled machine. Mm-hmm. But uh, today we are diving back into commentary on Luther's Catechisms by Albrecht Peters. This time on this podcast, we are in volume thrice, The Lord's Prayer, or just Lord's Prayer. You bought it. No, I own this one. I own this one and then the the sacraments. I don't own the uh, Table of Duties. Oh, that one. What was what was it with? I don't remember. Table duties and confession. Is that right? That sounds right. Hmm. Okay. Must be because I don't have that in any of the other volumes. Yeah. Five volume set. Yes. Pick it up. It's linked in the show notes. Yes, it is. So Lord's Prayer with the thinnest of the volumes is yet still really an excellent commentary on the Lord's Prayer and the Catechism because Peter treats the Lord's Prayer, surprise, surprise, Christologically. Hmm and its relationship to the gospel, prayer and its relation to the gospel. And I thought it would be fun today then to dive into Luther on the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer and discuss the whole matter of praying for forgiveness. Forgive us our sins, trespasses, debts, as we forgive those who sin, trespass, our debtors. Depending on which evangelist you ask, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the translation that we are using today, we're going to be beginning on page 165, uh, it's the forgive us our debtors. That's the translation we're working with. Okay, that's Luke, right? Mm-hmm. I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, if you want to grab your Peter's Lord's Prayer, or you don't own it already, you can. These are Kindle ready, right? Uh, I believe so. It's CPH. Yeah. It's recent yeah. publication, so pretty confident. Yeah, yeah. Well, we normally do that. When was this published here? In we haven't been doing that because we've been in the same series, right? True enough. Uh, let's see here. Albrecht Peters, 1924 to 1987. So at least I know when he was born and when he died. Let's uh, see here. Let's see. The Creed, Creed volume came out in 2011. Mm, I'm assuming this came out shortly thereafter. Why is it not? 2011 is the English translation of this. Yeah, it looks like they came out, uh, and Kindle edition is available. It is more expensive than the paperback. Well, that makes total sense. On Amazon. Uh, but the Kindle edition didn't come out till 2016, so mm, okay. five years later. So. There we go. But you can get it today, right. immediately. Right. Nice. So let's dive right in. Uh, I uh, kept my kids home from school today so we could go see the Avengers this morning. Priorities. Because... I'm a I'm a loving, adoring father, and uh, it uh, justifies me not working. Too, right? well, it justifies me not having to go to you know not working to go to the Avengers. <laughs> I can oh. take my children and say no. It's for the kids. Yeah, tough it's call. not for me. Yeah, it's, it's not a work expense though. No, I'm, I'm I'm trying to figure out how I could roll that up into a youth event, but. <laughs> 
I like it. Isn't that? But that's like every youth event is you just take your kids to something and then on the way home go, okay, now who was the Christ figure in this? Oh, I was listening to a podcast where it was a huge controversy somewhere in Alabama where they took um, this this uh, great, or no, it was middle school uh, to go see Schindler's List. And, oh, and it, was nice. the, it was this black, largely black uh, school in Alabama. Yeah. Yeah. And they didn't warn them as to what this movie was about. Uh, this is grade school level. This age. Uh, these were middle schoolers. Yeah. Oh, middle schoolers. Okay. And the whole deal was they get if they go and they watch the movie, then they could go ice skating. So they were, you know, that was gonna, or roller skating. I probably. can see that relationship. <laughs> well, so so it was a the kind Holocaust of Holocaust and ice skating. I can see bait the and switch kind of thing, right? The teachers, yeah, right. you know, like they wanted them to experience this high culture. Well, it turns <laughs> out that in the movie theater uh, were actual, you know, family of Holocaust survivors, mm. um, and they didn't appreciate the way the children were responding to this movie. Uh, hmm. it's kind of like when i saw the matrix and like there were people on their phone calling people like you got to come see this movie it's great they were like <laughs> right. cheering at all the during the fight scenes and everything i saw right. it saw it in a very urban setting <laughs> and yeah. uh, that doesn't really work though with schindler's list it's a little bit more that's a little bit serious yeah. isn't there nudity in that yeah well there's there's, there's nudity in there, the kids in the outhouse hiding in the in the muck well there's multiple you know sexual yeah. encounters in the, in the movie yeah, oh right, yeah right <laughs> and uh and it's, some of it's pretty intense and happens right away, you know? Yeah. Beginning of the movie, so. Right. Okay. Bad. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a bad, bad Yeah. Move. So you're going to Avengers. I think that's probably safe. It's just violent, right? A little right? bit wiser. A little bit wiser. <sighs> no Nazis sniping Jews from their window. I had forgotten all about wow. the movie, too. And I just that's don't know. Intense. I just, it's kind of like uh, the Passion movie. It's just, mm, is it yeah, really, I'm, is it really right. appropriate or is it really just gratuitous at times, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that is the question. Because every movie is a representation of reality. This is why Plato referred to actors as frauds. Mm, right. <laughs> he had great disdain for actors because he considered actual life a copy of what is real. Um, and so he, when he, you know, when Plato talks about his ideal, the cave metaphor and so forth and so on, what's real versus the shadow, light versus shadow, and we're just mm -hmm. a shadow mm -hmm. of what's really real. And so he considered actors who are imitating life to be a copy of a copy of a copy shout out to Trent Reznor mm -hmm. but um yeah that's the interesting thing is that it's a and Chekhov talks about this too in his book on acting what what is an actor but someone who is attempting to represent reality and therefore it's a perception of reality but not reality itself no. and what happens then if you confuse perception with reality and assume that what you're doing is uh, a one-to-one -one kind of binary representation of reality. Yeah. Well, and, and often uh, the Christian church, at least historically, has rejected, you know, acting as almost demonic, right? Yeah, it is an interesting thing, especially when you talk about the passion play mm. that became mm -hmm. very, very popular during the Middle Ages. And you can go to Germany... I think Germany every year does like there's a village or a city in Germany that Omer Abergau or something like that, right? Yeah, they they the entire city is converted <laughs> for pronunciation. <laughs> this passion play. Well, th there's plenty of Lutherans listening, so I'm sure we'll get it correct. Omer Abergau, something like that. Yeah. Omer Elberfud, what? <laughs> yeah, and actually, it's a it's a cool town because the passion play is mm. only every ten years or something like that. Something like that, yeah. yeah. Some of my ladies went the last time it happened. But they have uh, wonderful craftsmen there that make, mm. like, if you need a corpus for a crucifix, okay. uh, that's where they come from. Interesting. 
But you see the you see the extreme example of this every year during Holy Week on Good Friday, like in places like the Philippines, mm, where right. they actually crucify people. <laughs> yeah, they get nailed to a cross. <laughs> they actually do get nailed to a cross. Some get just whipped and bloodied and tied to the cross. But the real devout Christians, they get nailed right to the cross. And they do it every year. And again, you can see then how when you take, well, this goes back to, uh, I've mentioned this before, talking to, with a, a Near Eastern ancient church historian. <laughs> That's a long sentence. But he was talking about how you can kind of track the history of sacrifice to a misinterpretation of Abraham mm-hmm. and the Abrahamic sacrifice of Isaac. And that in the telling of what happened during that experience, during that event, what people heard was, if I sacrifice my firstborn son or if I sacrifice right. an innocent, God will reward me versus God provided the sacrifice for Abraham, and it wasn't really about killing Isaac that got the reward from God at all. It wasn't a transaction, which is why Abraham says, God will provide the sacrifice and we will come back right, and so forth. And a very similar way, then you see how misinterpretation of the Abrahamic sacrifice led to human sacrifice, animal sacrifice, grain sacrifice in the way of transaction with God, and even how the Israelites turned that into a uh, a transaction with God. And then you look at the passion, you look at the suffering and death of Jesus on Good Friday and how we do the exact same thing mm, right. that the ancient Near Easterns did when they encountered the Abrahamic story. Whereas when we encounter the Good Friday story, we run it out to, well, if that's what got Jesus raised from the dead and that was pleasing to the Father, that he would suffer for the sin of his people – well, we should do likewise then. We right. should imitate him. Take up our cross and follow him. Exactly. Not just spiritually, but physically. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And this is what we do. And we can get into this too in relation to the text then on prayer is that whatever we read about, rather than seeing that as being, this is about the Savior. Mm, right. And what he is doing for us, we go back to that whole hero's narrative, the hero's journey. And say, well, Abraham's the hero of the faith, or David is the hero of the faith, or Jesus is the hero of the faith, and so therefore we should imitate them. And in imitating them, using them as our role model, following them, in the way of obedience, then God will reward us. Uh-huh. Which we were talking about in that episode on, um, Tentler episode on uh, sin and confession on the eve of the Reformation. That, that so long ago, I didn't even remember it. The quality of your confession determines the absolution. Ah, you're right. And so sincerity, purity, the perfection of your confession will then result, hopefully, in an absolution that gives you some sort of comfort, but not absolute comfort because it can never Mm. be a total absolution. You only get what you put into it kind of thing. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so what, what more could you do to show God your devotion and your gratitude and your thanks and your praise than to imitate his son and follow that example and then say, see... I did everything except get, you know, die and go to hell. So what do I get? Which is very Aryan in a certain sense that Jesus is as close to God as you can get without being God. Oh, yeah. And therefore we should follow his example so we can get as close to God as we can. I don't know. Every time I pray, I, I try really hard, but I never quite do that whole sweating drops of blood thing. Right. And well, it's just because you're not really bursting. committed to it. You're distracted. <sighs> try so hard but i just right i can't quite get into it enough i guess right well Um, that's that's the problem when the gospel becomes a transaction rather than a gift yeah the for you-ness of it the declaration by god that yeah everything is given to you as gift through faith in christ even his works so you don't have to go to the cross and die in that way the cross will be laid on you in your vocation 
What's which is of, what Peter never understood, right? That's the whole problem with Peter, Jesus calling Peter Satan is Peter never really understood what take up your cross mm-hmm. and follow me means. No, he said, because he's like, hey, look, we got two swords. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Maximum effort. Let's go. Let's do this. And she's like, no, 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 stupid. That's not how this works. <laughs> Didn't stop him from trying, cutting off. Right, uh, yeah. What's his name's here? Malchus is. Yeah. Uh-huh. But that's why we relate so well to Peter. It's like always violence. <laughs> right, always. Just, I got this. I'm a man of action. <laughs> But uh, so if you if you want to follow along with us, we're on page 165, the fifth petition in Albrecht Peter's commentary on Luther's small catechism, Mm -hmm. this one being on the Lord's Prayer, beginning with the first full paragraph on page 165, which is the only paragraph on page 165, because it's on to 166. (laughs) That's true. It is. Oh, my goodness. That's that's a whole page right there. That Mm -hmm. paragraph is a page. And if it wasn't for footnotes, that would be an overwhelming (laughs) overwhelming paragraph to look at. Let's do it anyway. Let's do it. Let's bite off this giant chunk of the candy bar. So the words, as we forgive our debtors, are for Luther a necessary but indeed comforting addition. Hmm. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And this for Luther, this as we forgive the second part of the clause, is a necessary but indeed comforting addition. Hmm. Forgive us. As we forgive them, which could be heard transactionally. I think right? it usually is, isn't it? At least well, my, that's it. my experience. Yeah, right. I'll forgive you if you forgive me, or mm-hmm. if I forgive you, you better forgive me, or I won't forgive you again. Yeah. And there, there's Peter again. Well, how many times? Right. Well, and the question too is, this has come up for me numerous times as a pastor is, when people ask for forgiveness, do they want you to forgive them as their neighbor? Do they want you to forgive them in, in this for the sake of neighborly love? Mm-hmm. Or do they want you to forgive them in Christ's name? Is this a, a human forgiveness or is this an absolution? Mm. And why does that matter? Well, in the one, it's not forgotten because it's human forgiveness. It's always there in my mental Rolodex. It's always threatening to push its way to the surface again and come back out right. in the way of accusation or demand versus Jesus's forgiveness, which you and I as pastors would qualify or or could you know put the condition on once I absolve your sins in the name of Jesus, I will never bring them up again because they are thrown down the well of his death. Yeah, it's certainly not in a in any way that would accuse or condemn. Mm-hmm. Of course they always do. So that's why you don't bring them up at, at all. <laughs> well, this is Dr. Luther's famous dictum that only the devil brings up forgiven sins. Mm. Which I'm yeah, you could there's a conversation that you could have uh, which we do have at church around this whole matter of, yes, I can forgive your sins if you're just asking me to forgive you in the way that my children say, can you forgive me or will you forgive me for X, Y, Z? And I say, yes, I forgive you. Mm-hmm. Versus, can you forgive my sin or can you forgive me that I've sinned against you? And can you forgive me Jesus much? Can you forgive me in the name of Jesus? And that when we talk about forgiveness then and forgiving our debtors as we have been forgiven, are we talking in the way of Christ or are we talking in the way of just human forgiveness? Yeah. Because I think a lot of times, as, even as Christians, when we ask each other for forgiveness, we just say, yeah, I forgive you. Well, there's that expression, forgive and for, forget. forget. And yeah. I've always wondered about that. I mean, is that really what, um, is that really what biblical forgiveness is? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or you know, does, does God forget, forget our sins? <laughs> well, that's what the word, that's literally what righteousness means in Hebrew that God no longer remembers our sin. He no longer recalls it to memory. That, and that's why I teach the confirmance is that forgiveness literally means God no longer remembers your sin. 
because the blood of Christ covers it's it. It's done. It's gone. Right? And and Jesus became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. But then we look at the cross and we see our, our debts or our sins. Yeah, nailed to the cross, nailed, yeah, hung on the cross. We don't forget. He does. <laughs> That's right. Just... He forgets in the in the in the oblivion of Jesus's death. Yeah, the Father forgets, and this is the interesting thing. I think when we were we're in the Gospel of John for adult Bible study on Tuesday nights, and when you get to chapter six, Jesus says that all judgment has been given to Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's right. That all authority to judge that the Father judges no one. Jesus says, mm-hmm. and that all authority to judge has been given to me. At and the right so, hand of the Father, right? That's right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And yet the right hand is the hand of mercy. It's the hand of justification, faith, love, and kindness. And so, therefore, Jesus' judgment is one of justification. And only when one insists on being condemned does he give them what they want. Yeah, he's not your enemy, uh, unless you want to make him out right. to be your enemy. Right. Well, it's like Paul says, well, we were still enemies. Mm-hmm. And that God was never, is never our enemy. We are, we make him out to be the enemy, but he is never our enemy. Right. There you go. From his side of the street. And therefore we treat him as enemy, like, you know, the first man and woman do Adam and Eve treat him as enemy. That's why they hide from him because they're afraid that he's going to kill them. And for what they've done versus forgive them for what they've done. Hmm. And so therefore we miss in the, the disciplining of them. We miss the fact that Genesis chapter 3 is about reconciliation, not condemnation. Wait a minute. God forgave Adam and Eve in Genesis 3? Yeah, something about restoration and the promise. and the, this, Yeah, the, the offspring to crush the serpent's head. What's I was going to say, Eve is, Eve is one of the only women in the Bible that gets a genealogy, mm. that, that it seems to matter that God is going to use her. He's going to weaponize Eve's womb to overthrow sin, death, and hell. Yeah, that's um, good news. <laughs> yeah, right. That the devil tries to weaponize her against to undo creation, and God's like, "Oh, did you want to? Did you want to weaponize her children? Oh, okay, we can do that. We can play that game. I can play that game with you too." And so, yeah, she's going to have a child, and he's going to not only crush your head but kill you dead. And yeah, you're going to bite his heel and poison him to death. But and so we see this over and over again, and then it's summed up in "Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us." But Luther's going to then expand upon this in the way, not of transaction, but in the way of the gospel, and right. then come back around to the destructiveness, the destruction that comes out of not forgiving our neighbor as ourself, mm. not loving our neighbor as ourself. As, as we've been forgiven. I was going to say, forgiving as we've been forgiven is a better way to say it. You can't mm-hmm. forgive yourself. Well, you can, but again, <laughs> if you're it delusional, doesn't really, it doesn't really stick. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, it always anybody comes back who's, Anybody who's looked in the mirror and said, I forgive you. <laughs> How'd that work out? <laughs> it's bipolar. You know, 80% of the time you can forgive yourself. I'll give you that. Like 80% of the time it works. It's just the 20% of the time when temptation and affliction and real struggle and violence and you're overwhelmed by sin and death that it just doesn't hold up. Yeah, I don't even know if I'd say 80%, but you're I'm right. I'm optimistic this morning. I, my coffee <sighs> just kicked in. Yeah, it just doesn't hold on though. I, th- I like that. No, it, it doesn't. It doesn't, have a, it doesn't have a tight grip. Hmm. It's not enough, you put it simply. No. Yeah, it's not satisfied. It's just not enough to forgive yourself. Mm-hmm. And this is what I mean, referring back to what I, what I started with, was I can forgive you, but is it enough? Does it literally satisfy? The word satisfy meaning literally it is enough. Yeah. Is it enough that I forgive you? And for myself, it, yeah, it has its limits. Mm-hmm. It can be satisfying momentarily, but long-term, especially in, you know, in a relationship, I don't think 
And this, we've talked about this too, is this is what I teach for marriage counseling. This is what I teach to couples. This is what I teach to married people who have been married decades is love is the sum of the law. Mm-hmm. But if you want your marriage to last, it's got to be grounded on forgiveness, not love. Absolutely. Yeah. Because love fluctuates and changes. And I definitely loved Annie more when we first got married than I do now. But love in the way of... As I was saying, in one sense, right? Right. Love in the way of passion. Right. Arrows, if you like. Yeah. Well, passion in the sense of suffering for the relationship. Mm-hmm. And love in the sense of trying to work out compromises and not understanding... Right. It doesn't work that way. And now I would say I don't love her the way that I loved her when we first were married, but rather I adore her mm-hmm. in the way of, and I tell people this too, and I don't think it's universally true, but at least for us it is, is that when our first child was born, everything changed for me. Absolutely. Everything changed, oh, yeah. especially the way that I viewed my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and having children really made her into a theologian. If you want to talk about how crosses, mm. how suffering and struggle and affliction makes you a theologian of the cross... My wife, by the by, our fourth child, she's a much better theologian than I'll ever be because she can say things in one sentence that take me, oh, two, three hours in a podcast to work out. Yeah, that's right. Plus, she has an economy of words that I think comes from that experience. Yeah. Well, we don't want to discount experience in the way that it intersects with the Word of God, right? No, no, because Luther doesn't. I mean, that's what he says in the Heidelberg Disputation already in 1518 is that a theologian of the cross is one who is made yeah. into a theologian through suffering and affliction. Right. That's why we don't try to sidestep that I mean, we do right. avoid suffering and pain of course um most of us who are well adjusted and healthy try mm, to avoid suffering yeah, I and pain. Suppose that's true some of us rush into it <laughs> right but but if we but there's all sorts of ways to escape that that doesn't yeah that just that also doesn't stick in the way of right well that's why we're trying to nerf the world all uh, the time we're trying to make it safer and safer and the safer we try and make it it seems like the more frustrated we get with the fact that it won't bend to our whim Going back to the platonic ideal. It isn't ideal. safe. It isn't going to be no, safe. No. It's just that you can go to your refrigerator every five minutes and pull food out of it, and you don't have to worry about the elements killing you because you have a roof over your head and so forth and so on. It yeah. makes it easier than to to engage in a kind of platonic ideal. We don't even uh, have to you don't even have to suffer like Costco. They'll actually right. Amazon will come they'll open your trunk mm-hmm. and put food in your trunk for you. Right. Yeah. They they have a special getting. key. It's just right. Yeah. Or you can have uh you know, meals in a box delivered to your meals front in a door. box delivered to you while you're in your adjustable bed. You don't even have to get out of bed. You just hit the button; it sits you up. I feel like we've said up. this before. This I is Wally, isn't it? This. Uh, yeah, it is yeah. Wally. In the end of the day, it is Wally. Yeah, <laughs> we're there, uh, baby. Pick, we're about fifty years Pixar away. Film guys, if you're not not following along at home. Oh, how can you not know Wally? It's a classic. It is it's such a good movie, such a good narrative. Um, but really, this then brings us back around to forgive us our debtors is. Can you can you forgive someone who owes you something if you have not already been forgiven in the way of Jesus mm-hmm. and that you have not been declared absolved absolutely? You need that freedom in order to freely forgive, right? Right. Exactly. I would argue that. And let's see if that's where he goes with this. We'll so the inherent, the inherent command character of this affirmation, Luther expands out of the tradition and he talks about Gregory of Nyssa in the previous page of what Luther took from Gregory of Nyssa. And the next who said, page. Yeah, that Gregory of Nyssa stresses, in the confidence in our readiness to forgive, do we appeal to God's benevolence? Yeah. In the sense of, we are appealing to God for to forgive us, and yet then do we turn around and forgive others in the same way that we have been unconditionally forgiven? Or is it that once we are forgiven, we then turn around and use that as leverage against others? 
Mm-hmm. Do we hold other people's sin against us, even though we beg God to remove our own sin from our shoulders? Oh, there's a parable about that. Oh, yeah, I, th- I think it might. Yeah, maybe the unjust steward. Is mm-hmm. that maybe? Yeah, maybe. Unfor- unforgiving servant, maybe? Yeah. Let's see if it comes up. So Luther expands out of the tradition and thereby exclude or includes, sorry, Luther thereby includes, albeit carefully, that which had been consistently excluded. And Peter's quotes Luther, should you not forgive, then also do not think that God forgives you. Mm. How can you expect God to forgive you if you don't forgive others? And not conditionally. That's the kicker. For me, that's really the kicker is it's not that God should not forgive me because I don't forgive others. It's that God will forgive me unconditionally without limit or measure. And then I'll turn around and add a limit or a measure to my forgiveness of others. Right, and exactly. I think I sent you, I sent you that uh, quote last week from that Eastern Orthodox priest. Oh, yeah. That never judge anyone else, but focus on judging the evil one. Hmm. And that the evil one is me. Like there's only one in relation, in relation to the cross of Christ, when you're faced up to the cross, and we've talked about this before, when you're faced up to the cross of Christ, just like the tax collector at the back of the synagogue in the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, in relation to most holy God, how can you possibly see anyone else in relation to God as being any more sinful than you? Right. If you're faced up to God. If you're faced up to the cross and you're focused on Jesus and Jesus alone, how can you possibly look to the left, to the right, or behind you? To locate other sinners when caught up in, in the crucifixion, you can say, there is my sin. Mm-hmm. Like, he has taken my sin upon himself. He has taken my place on my cross and died my death for me. How in that moment can you... It's like saying to the beloved, I do, while you're looking over her shoulder at her bridesmaid winking at her. Hmm. It's like, you can't do both. Yeah, there's a way that forgiveness ends all that tribalism or that, you know, separation. Right. No, that's a good point. It really does. It ends that tribal attitude of it's my group and if you're not a part of my group or my organization or my church or whatever it may be you can't possibly be forgiven because god can only forgive some kind of external standards as to who de- who deserves or um, merits our forgiveness well it's like the i preached on nicodemus yesterday in, in uh, john 3 that you know nicodemus every morning when nicodemus wakes up he has to ask himself what must i do today to be saved mm-hmm because that's really the religion of the of the Jews, the religion of the Pharisees is, what must I do to be saved? And it's simple. Obey the Ten Commandments. Yeah. <laughs> and through obedience, you earn God's favor and attention. And then Jesus upends that entire system. And he doesn't come to say, no, this I just we just need to tweak your religion. It's got a few flaws. It's got a few errors. We just need to tweak it. And he doesn't come to create a new religion. He comes to end the religion of not only the Jews, but all religion. By saying, it, you, when you wake up in the morning, the question isn't, what must I do to be saved? But rather, what has Jesus already done for me that I am saved? And so for Nicodemus, it's it's all about behaving yourself. It's all about presenting the right sacrifices. It's all about the proper creedal formulas and saying the proper formulas. It's all about the proper liturgy and the proper worship. And so as a consequence, when Nicodemus... Nicodemus, he's like, I'm, I, I'm obedient to the law. Like the first commandment is the most important. It's the chief and first command. It's the, the thing that occupies the most of my time and my thoughts. And yet what Nicodemus doesn't recognize is he worships the law, but he doesn't worship the giver of the law. Otherwise, he would oh, recognize right. yeah. that the giver is right in front of him. Mm-hmm. And therefore, Nicodemus is almost as far from the kingdom as an atheist and maybe even further. Because at least an atheist is rejecting God, not the commands. Right. 
Because even an atheist has the law written on his heart. And that encounter with Nicodemus, I mean, it is transformative for him. It, apparently, because you and I talked off air about this, is when Nicodemus comes in private at night to talk to Jesus at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, and then at the end, when Jesus is dead, he comes in public yeah. in the daylight to say, can we take the body? <laughs> can we have the body? Well, we see what happens to Paul as a Pharisee for publicly confessing Christ. Yeah. Jesus has the Christ. So in a kind of sanctified, speculative way, what happens to Nicodemus when he publicly confesses Jesus is the Christ in that sense? Or at least shows him um, the honor. You know, right, that he's uh, sympathetic. That he, he buries him not as a blasphemer, as a heretic. Right, but... exactly. Yeah, they don't just throw him in a ditch or a hole somewhere. Right. In Potter's Field. Mm-hmm. Like, what's the consequences for, especially Nicodemus? Paul is just a young prodigy, still learning the rails Pharisee. Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. That is significant. <clears throat> so, yeah, there's something about the what Jesus says to him that, yeah, it tears down his religion. It tears down his religiosity and reduces it to nothing. Mm-hmm. And yet, out of that experience, he comes back around at the end, and we meet him again at the end of Jesus' life, and he's somehow, like you said, been transformed by that conversation to the extent that publicly he will do this. Yeah. Even though just... Even if he doesn't recognize Jesus as the Christ or say this guy's this guy's the real deal, the very fact that he's collecting the body publicly is going to get him in trouble. Because yeah. everything that anybody does, you know, you heal a blind man or you heal a paralytic on the Sabbath, that'll get him kicked out of the synagogue. He lives in some sort of freedom, you know, that exactly. he's not he's not oh, he's willing to accept whatever the consequences of these actions will be. Right. No? Exactly. So should you not forgive, then also do not think that God forgives you. We mock our mutual heavenly Father when we approach Him for mercy, and at the same t- and at the same moment pummel a fellow human being with words or thoughts. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Mm. <laughs> that we pray it regularly. I pray it every day. Sometimes, usually, <laughs> I'm not going to claim that I pray the Lord's prayer every day. I think I do, but we pray it constantly. We pray it liturgically every Sunday. The catechism gives us to pray it at least five times, and then if we're in any kind of mm-hmm. danger, <laughs> to pray right, it then exactly. too. Pray it in the morning, pray it in the evening. Pray it at pray every it, meal. and at every meal, exactly. Yeah. Um, and yet, how often do we pray it unthinkingly? We don't mm-hmm. even meditate on the words. We don't practice mindfulness in relation to what we're praying. Even though Jesus, being a kind and forgiving God, says, I know that you're kind of dim and slow, and there's a lot of psalms. <laughs> so let me simplify this for you here when you pray pray this way and our favorite christian heresy islam you know at least they have that mm-hmm. going for them it's like no you memorize the text right you know we can't even yeah. memorize 150 psalms so. yeah, exactly which we probably know that many pop songs oh, oh for sure my kids <laughs> my my six and my seven year old can rip off pokemon names and descriptions like it's there's no tomorrow <sighs> dedication it is Hmm. so we mock our heavenly father when we approach him for mercy for faithful loving kindness and at the same time at the same moment we pummel a fellow human being with words or thoughts that show no faithful loving kindness no mercy that's something i mean we we criticize hypocrisy and yet we don't see it in our own in our own life right well i think the criticism of hypocrisy is the hypocrisy rather than just (laughs) owning it Uh, right yes we are hypocrites yeah this is not this is not about perfection um, it's always incomplete, right? Yes. And yet, don't make a mockery of your heavenly Father. And 
what he's done for you. Well, think about the, think about in terms of you and I were talking about this yesterday, yesterday afternoon. Is so many people think that the law equals morality. They're syn- they're synonymous. That law equals morality. Morality equals law. That God's law, mm-hmm. the God's word of law, is morality. Yeah, and that the only the only kind of preaching of the law is is, is the Ten preaching. Commandments. Is the right, Ten Commandments exactly. kind of preaching. Right. 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 And and not even descriptively, but just a statement. Here is the fourth commandment, honor your father and mother. Here is the description. Now do it. Do it or stop not doing it. <laughs> right. And what's interesting to me then, biblically speaking, is how Paul takes that and completely undresses it and exposes it naked to say, well, if you want to make God's word of law almost solely about morality, about the Ten Commandments being about do right, avoid doing wrong... He And then that's obedience, that obedience is the fulfillment of the law. Obedience is what the law is demanding of you. Mm-hmm. And then Paul comes along in Romans and says, the good that I want to do, I never do. But the evil that I don't want to do, that's all I ever do. And therefore, Paul basically tears down moral philosophy, because that's what it is. It's not moral theology, it's moral philosophy. Right. That's then added to God's word of law in order to make it doable, because that's really what we're after when we, when we hear God preach his word of law is it's too unconditional it's too absolute and it's too impossible but it is meant to hold everything under captivity right right that is why was the trespass what i'm sorry the law was given so that every mouth may be shut yeah that everybody may be shut up and then to condemn everything under sin uh, just read galatians it's pretty devastating right it is to condemn to basically like you said put everything under sin in case you were curious, is that a sin? Yes, because everything means everything. And also to shut everybody up. That is like he says, our heart does what? It either excuses us or accuses us, but it's never silent. Yeah. And therefore the law is given so that God may say, can you shut up long enough for me to actually do something good for you? Because your whole plan to do something good for me is why we're in this situation in the first place. Well, and that's the thing with forgiveness that sometimes people say, well, you know, I there's an agenda or there's some kind of social transaction that's happening there. And yeah. of course there is. That's the problem. It, it can be true and genuine and at the same time for have some kind of selfish gain behind it. You yeah. know, you're oh, seeking sure. to repair a relationship because it's economically beneficial or something. Well, and that's why I would say that forgiveness in the way of Christ is going to appear to be immoral Mm. because you're forgiving someone who has sinned against you. And that may be in a very earthly sense, something that you can see that you can, you can put your hand on and go that, see that thing right there. They did that to me. They wronged me. Yeah. I'm going to forgive that. And people will say, but how can you possibly forgive that? Hmm. How can you announce forgiveness? And that at the base of forgiveness, forgive others as we've been forgiven, at the base of that is, like we've talked about in the past, especially in relation to the law, is it's self-annihilation. Because when you forgive someone for sinning against you, you're saying, my need for justice, my need for retribution, my need for some sort of penalty to be passed on, handed down to you, that you have to basically do some sort of reparation to prove to me you're worthy of my forgiveness, Mm -hmm. that's swept aside. And it's simply... I forgive you. The hardest thing to do is to forgive when there is no advantage to you. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is why Jesus in Matthew, right? That it's easy to forgive someone you love. Uh, It's easy to forgive someone you like, but forgive your enemies. Yeah. Or even on the flip side, I'm thinking of like at Nuremberg, you know, Mm -hmm. to, to be a war criminal and you're guaranteed you're going to be hung. I mean, that's, that's happening. Yeah. Uh, And yet to confess and, and receive forgiveness 
and it's not going to get you off the hook. It's not going to, it's, yeah. you're not, not going to win any friends. It probably, it's not even going to be for a whole generation before anybody knows that you confessed and were forgiven yeah. by that, by that chaplain. So there, there's right. really no earthly gain to it at all mm-hmm. for you. It's, mm-hmm. it's all spiritual. Yeah. Um, and it's, and to do that sincerely, I mean, it's it's really well. It's a right. testament of God's well, of God's work. This happened in South Africa after apartheid, where Desmond Tutu was mm. allowed to organize the Reconciliation Commission, where both whites and blacks sat down together, and rather than figure out how we're going to punish all these white people for what they did to us, yeah. we're going to figure out how we can reconcile with each other because there can be no peace, there can be no true democracy if we're just going to go back and forth. We're in power, so we'll punish you. Then you get back in power. Then you're going to punish us for what we did to you while we were in power. That only through forgiveness, only through absolution, forgiving each other for what we've done to each other in the past, can we move forward in the future. And it actually did work quite well at a certain level, mm-hmm. but locally, not so much. And you and I both have a friend. I have friends that live in South Africa, and they'll tell you, like in Johannesburg and so forth, yeah, at the governmental level, at the higher level, that worked. But at the local street level, it didn't really work that well. Yeah, it's like saying we've overcome segregation in this country. Right, right. There's socioeconomic factors, and there's all kinds of things that I go just into go into that. Chicago, and yeah, yeah there you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just like, go to Chicago or go north of here in Indiana. Go to Gary, and you're like, mm, right. Yeah, good luck. I don't think right. we, it really worked. Right. You know, it's still there. So we mock our mutual Heavenly Father when we approach him for mercy and at the same moment pummel him, pummel a fellow human being with words mm-hmm. or thoughts, which vocationally speaking means we are pummeling God. Yeah. Because his doctor, we are, they, our neighbor is the hands and mask of God. Mm-hmm. They, they are the instruments of God in the world, in creation. And therefore, by pummeling our neighbor, we're not only pummeling Jesus, if it's our Christian brother and sister, but we're just pummeling God who is in our neighbor <laughs> by not forgiving them and showing them mercy. Yeah. Which is an interesting correlate that you go into the house of the Lord to ask for faithful loving kindness to be shown to you. Then you leave the house of the Lord and you immediately just beat the living crap out of your neighbor. Or you don't even make it out of church. You're you're having your coffee and your treat after church and you've already started to gossip and tear people apart. It's amazing. It really is. Yeah, it really is. It's Well, it's a lack of, I think the word you used earlier was mindfulness. Yeah. You know, you, you prayed these words um, they didn't sink in deep, if you like, right. or you didn't right. reflect upon them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and the, the transformative character of them, you know, how does, uh, how does uh, Dr. Nagel say it? You know, let the word of God have its way with you. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and I don't think we were talking in adult Bible study Sunday morning because we're in going through the history of the liturgy and the historical liturgy. And we get to the Sanctus, the Holy, Holy, Holy. Yeah. And I explained that, okay, the service of the word, this is what this does, but the service of the sacrament now is really when God says, okay, in case you weren't aware of this, time and space, going to kind of break them down for you. Yeah. That now we're going to sing with angels, archangels, and with all the company of heaven. That is everyone who's already in the resurrection, and that includes you, and yet you're caught in linear chronological time, you're caught up in that because you're flesh and blood, and yet at the same time, because you're in Christ through faith, you're caught up into essentially fifth dimensional time that is time that is without measure and hold on kids we're getting metaphysical here i know right fifth well again in in relation to so like in the way that if you look at a line on a piece of paper that's one dimensional space Mm -hmm. because we're in three dimensional space if you're in the fifth dimension three dimensional space is like one point perspective it's one dimensional perspective for someone in the fifth dimension and if you don't understand this go watch interstellar the very end of interstellar (laughs) i didn't know they built that whole set 
Yeah, that whole with the with the lights and the yeah. and the Isn't duplication, that and that was yeah. that was built on a that wasn't computer generated. It was on a no, studio. That's set. That's Nolan for you, though. Yeah, Christopher Nolan. That's that's why it works. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same thing with uh, Inception. That yeah. hallway scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll just we'll just build it rather than do it CGI. Um, and it's believable then. Very. So this is what ends up happening then is that in the service of the sacrament, then we are basically drawn outside of time and space to participate with all the cloud of witnesses in praising the Lamb of God on his throne in a revelation. What is it? 15 way? I can't remember. Exactly. 21. 21. Yeah, 21. Thank you. Surely there. Multiple yeah. times. Yeah. But it's that, you know, here's the Lamb on his throne. Let's all praise and worship him. And... As one woman said, then that's mind boggling. That blows my mind now. Like she said, I cannot ever not now think of that when we get to the service of the sacrament and liturgy. Mm-hmm. Not only that I'm singing with my great, 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 great grandparents, but also my great, 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 great grandchildren that we're all singing together in the resurrection at the same time that I'm here in this congregation with all of you. That is, and that's transformative. I mean, it truly right, is. is. You know, like she said, it's mind blowing for her. It just, it melts your brain. And I said, yeah, exactly. But that's kind of the point of the liturgy is. The point of the historic liturgy is it's supposed to melt your brain. It's supposed to make you slow down and go, wait a minute, I need to think about this some more. You go right up to the edge of the black hole onto the event horizon, right? Right, exactly. And yet within that conversation, then what comes out at the end is you can't comprehend what's happening. Mm -hmm. And so it isn't a matter of, well, if you understand this, you're participating correctly in this. Or if you grasp this intellectually as an idea, Mm -mm. you're participating in it. Because that's, again, that's Platonism. That's philosophical stuff. It's not concrete and real. Which is what we do with the sacrament in specific with the bread and wine. Exactly. And yet the purpose of, in this example, historic liturgy is to ground you very much in the present tense. And yet, at the same time, make you aware of your participation in something that is prehistoric and post-historic. Yeah. It's all happening simultaneously. And you're a part of that because you're Jesus' body. You're the body of Christ. Otherwise, you couldn't sing something like, you know, at the Lamb's High Feast, we sing. Right, exactly. Well, we're not there yet. So how are we right. singing that now? You know, right. or the Sanctus, as you said. Right. You know, we're singing with Isaiah. Uh, you know, we have the same vision that Isaiah saw, except we mm-hmm. see it. This is my sermon yesterday. Um, mm-hmm. we, we see that vision and it doesn't strike fear and terror in us because uh, we have the same gift that he ended up receiving, right? The hot right. tongue from the altar, yeah. the forgiveness yeah. from the lamb. Right. You know? and rather than a hot coal, we just have the body yeah. put on our lips. Exactly. Right? And therefore, uh, the whole historic liturgy is just forgiveness after forgiveness after forgiveness, not just in the way of right now, but also in the way of forever. It's interesting, too, because... Um, one of the connections between the service of the word and the service of the sacrament is that in both we sing Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah, yeah. The, the whole liturgy is about that. It's not like, um, mm-hmm. well, here's this part that's going to get feed up, you know, feed our intellectual yeah, right. need, right, with the service of the word. No, that's not mm-hmm. what it's for primarily. It's it's there to forgive again. Right. And then we go to the sacrament yeah, and that's to forgive. And we already had mm-hmm. confession and absolution to forgive. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, too much of a good thing? Yes. Right. No, of course not. Oh, and here we go. This behavior, this pummeling of each other with words and thoughts is mm-hmm. condemned through Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant. Go figure. There you go. So the early church interpretation already accentuates that we in this way already speak our own judgment. Hmm. And this is, we've talked about this before, that, that hell is full of forgiven sinners. They simply pushed the gift across the table back to Jesus and went, nope, we refuse it. We'd rather be condemned. Or as Paul says it in a Roman sort of way, he gave them the desires of their heart. 
or as Jesus says, uh, Lord, when did we see you? <laughs> right, exactly. That Jesus is already in the world, already at work in the world, and he has to reveal himself to us because we think, oh, I'm bringing Jesus to the world. Yeah, rather than and, finding him uh, where he's promised to be behind masks and our neighbor. Right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And therefore, those neighbors that we pummel with our thoughts and our words are actually the instruments of God's forgiveness, essentially. <laughs> That here, here's another opportunity for you to again become lesser, mm-hmm. decrease so that I might increase. That is, decrease yourself in relation to your neighbor, annihilate your own needs in relation to your neighbor, consider yourself to be of no importance in relation to your neighbor, so that you can forgive your neighbor, show mercy. And at the, at the at the heart of it all is to see always to see in every neighbor, whether they're a friend or enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, someone whom Christ died for, right? Right. Well, and the freedom, like you pointed out to, the freedom that comes with the forgiveness of sin is that we have the freedom to forgive even those who we name as enemy. Mm -hmm. Because, as I said earlier, alluded to earlier, we even hold God up as our enemy, which is why when we look at another person as enemy, we don't recognize this is an instrument of God also. Yeah. We just simply see enemy, and then we go about dehumanizing them. There's always somebody uh, in the prayer of the church that, offends us, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody that we pray yeah. for in, in that comprehensive prayer. That, well, just look at the litany. Or in the litany, that's true too. But I mean, like yeah. on Sunday, okay, so we, we uh, who do we pray? Uh, well, I was thinking of Alfie Evans, you know, that case overseas in, in England. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and I thought it would be appropriate that we pray um, for those who thought that it was that that it was worth ending his life. <laughs> right. You know, I'm like, wait a minute, how can you pray for those people? Well, um, do they need our prayers? Do they right. need to be forgiven? Do right. they as much as we do? Yeah. Right. Are they hearing the gospel? <laughs> if they right. haven't heard the gospel, then we, yeah, we 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 ought to be praying for them because apparently the gospel is what creates changed hearts, and changed hearts are what do good works. Yeah. Good godly works. Well, and yes. and you know this tribalism we talked about, and the way that we use forgiveness to kind of um, right to set up those boundaries. Yeah. It's like, well, if people are living in that immoral way, you know. Mm-hmm. either by our own interpretation or, or maybe even through an accurate interpretation from God's mm-hmm. Word, right. uh, how are they going to have their lives amended? How are they going to f- mm-hmm. see the, the error of their ways, if you like to say it that way, right. uh, if they're outside of God's Word? Right. Well, well and it's, we've talked about this in the past, too, that what we tend to do when we dehumanize another person is we reduce them to a snapshot mm. of who we believe them to be or think them to be versus just simply comprehending or accepting that each person is infinitely complex and their motivations may be very simple, basic motivations, but the way in which they arrive at those. Oh yeah. I mean, every, every event, every conversation, everything that led to that point. Right. Exactly. In time where you encounter them. Right. uh, Don't presume to know first. And then second, um, don't presume you can change all of that in in a Mm -hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. Right, or that, or that it's your responsibility to change all that, <laughs> or that you even could. <laughs> we were talking about this in relation again in Bible study. We were talking about this in relation to people who believe that if they don't save their church, the church will die, and therefore they sacrifice their families, they sacrifice their work, they sacrifice mm. everything, because every free moment, every waking moment is spent focused on we've got to keep the church open, we've got to keep the church running, and if I don't do it, it's going to collapse. Whose and church that, is it? Right, exactly. And that the this this theology, if you want to call it that, that God has put me here as his instrument to do this very thing. Hmm. That we don't understand that we that we misunderstand vocation, our vocational priorities, we misunderstand the Lord of the church and what he expects from us in the way of love. 
And that ultimately then we will not make ourselves Lord of the church because that's impious, but we will certainly make ourselves the earthly representation yeah. of it, our Lord versus, as I pointed out, you, you, you don't actually believe Jesus is a real person then at that point. Right. So it's, it, the corollary would be those who say that uh, when regards to creation, God is like this watchmaker. He's, he made the watch, he made creation, he kind of wound it up, he set it in motion, and then he stepped away. And he's no right. longer actively involved in creation. And then people yeah. do the same thing with the church. It's like, well, God founded this church, surely. I mean, the Holy Spirit gathered us and enlightened us. And, and but, but he's not, God isn't constantly work by his spirit in preserving right. and sustaining the church. Well, it's like Jesus as idea is mm-hmm. like we, when we believe in Jesus as an idea, then we have to act on his behalf because it's all a matter of agency. It's a question of agency. Mm-hmm. And as you just pointed out, is the agent of God the spirit of God or is the agent of God me in relation to matters of salvation? Yeah. yeah. And, and it does become a wrestling over agency then at that point. Yeah. That if I don't do this, then all these things will happen as a consequence. We're not denying and, instrumentality, right? That the no, God uses not. us as, as his mask or his It's just that in, in matters of salvation, we, are, we can't claim agency for ourselves. We're not running the verbs. It's the Holy Spirit that does that. We are the first fruits of the promise. That's the challenge with kind of, you know, in congregational life, um, the whole process of like goal setting or strategic yeah. planning is to say, how do we know that that plan or that goal um, right. is God's goal, his plan? Well, go back and read James, <laughs> right? The end of James, is it James 5 or 4? I should know this. I wrote that commentary on James, um, where he chastises people for saying, I'm going to go to a far country, I'm going to make my fortune, I'll come back in a year and then take care of all these other problems. <laughs> and he's like, you, you might fool. get stuck over there. <laughs> right? Who said you're going to, one who said you're going to make a fortune, who said you're going to do it in a year, who gave you tomorrow? Like, you make all these presumptions about God's grace, mm-hmm. and none of them are true. <laughs> yeah. Like, you have no control over any of the things that you just said. And yet you're so sure this is going to be the way it is. And we do the exact same thing in the present tense then, as you pointed out, is that we claim agency for ourselves, mm. And then we go about setting these goals and we, we come up with these plans. And again, there's nothing wrong with these things inherently until, right. like Nicodemus, we worship the plan rather than the giver. Until the plan is undermined, a new plan yeah. is given, right. a new direction needs to be taken. Right. And we definitely aren't going to forgive the people that we blame for undermining the plan. We'll blame the pastor, we'll blame that person in the congregation or those people, or we'll blame the committee for not doing it the right way. Right. I remember that situation. I had that uh, pre- in my previous call that um, uh, someone was tasked with a very specific project, did all the work, brought it to the congregation, and then the congregation said, no, nah, we don't like that. We want to do something different. Right. And they're like, and they were devastated. And it's decades later, still hadn't gotten over it. You know, this idea that plans change. I was like, well, yeah. I, you kind of got to get over yourself. Right. Isn't, that you an old, isn't that an old saying or whatever? Man plans, God laughs. Which <laughs> like is it. Psalm 2. I mean, Psalm 2, God mocks us for yeah. taking counsel with ourselves. Look at this tower we built. It's going to be impressive. Right. We're going to get up to God. Right. Yeah. That and, and the thing is, in the Psalm 2 sense, God's mockery of us is the cross. Yeah. That for all of our schemes and plans, for all of the the things that the rulers of countries and nations come up with, with the people and what we plot, as he mm-hmm. says, your plotting is useless. <laughs> and yet we keep plotting. We keep planning things out. We keep saying this is the way it's going to be. And here's what the growth is going to be. And we'll spend tens of thousands of dollars to pay experts to come in and tell us how 
Right. We can do these things and accomplish these things. Yeah, we're free and, to make plans. Yes. We're also free to change them. We're also and we're free, free to accept that they don't work. Yeah, we're free to fail at them too. Right. Uh, so we're not we're so we're not captivated by this idea that we can't do anything and that we just have to sit and wait all the time. But there is a there is a time and a place for that, right? To just be but silent. When we, again, <laughs> when we when we claim agency for ourselves, when we claim that we are the subject of the verbs when it comes to salvation. Mm. As we talked about before, it always it always comes out transactionally. It always washes out as what are we offering? What are we sacrificing? What are we doing for God so that he'll reward us for our activity? Well, I think that's the key distinction is to to view, you know, the life your life as a Christian and especially mm-hmm. your life in a congregation, not in terms of salvation. It's it's really yeah. just neighborly love. It's actions yeah. for that benefit well, we one another. We receive the gift and then we give it away. Mm-hmm. That's literally our whole life is passive in that sense, then that I receive from the Lord what I didn't even know I needed. And then once I receive it, I just give it away to my neighbor who has need Mm -hmm. because I know the Lord will always provide more. Yeah, and that should be at the center of every so-called ministry in the church, right? Every service of the church. Well, and that even gets spun up into a theology, a gospel of um, activity, uh, wealth, a gospel of wealth that, well, God will just give me more of this. Well, but what does more mean? Will he give, you know, do you need more faith? Do you need more forgiveness or do you need more money? Do you need Mm -hmm. more butts in the pews? Do you need a bigger building? Do you need more parking space? All of those things may be true in an earthly sense, but what do you need from the Lord more than anything? What gift are you called to give away? It's the gospel. Well, then also a lack of contentment with what we already have. The lack of satisfaction. Always looking across the fence and not recognizing, look at what we already have. Look at who we already what we've already been given. Yeah. Uh, let's make the most of that. Right. Rather than just burying this treasure in the field and going worried about other stuff, you know. Right. And as a consequence, coming back around to Peter's, then mm-hmm. we do actually by not forgiving others, we speak judgment on ourselves. Mm-hmm. We're not actually speaking judgment on another person. And 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 God's forgiveness, his mercy of us. Exactly. Yep. So Luther underscores the tension between the temporal and the eternal harm. Through their hostility, our fellow men can only inflict a small temporal injury on us. Through our insufficient readiness to forgive, we transform it into an eternal one. Oof, that's rough. Yeah. So, quoting Luther, watch out, O man, you do not betray him, but instead yourself, in not forgiving him. You make for yourself the real injuries, which the whole world is not able to do. Yeah. What, what is what is a little trespass becomes the biggest, becomes unbelief. Right, and he's talking second table of the law, which Dr. Luther referred to as puppy sins. <laughs> the second table sins are puppy sins. It's the tables of, it's the first table sins that are the, the big sins. But as he points out, and the reason he calls them puppy sins is because people are always coming to him confessing the, the worst, little ones. Yeah, yeah they, they confess the little ones as if they are the thing that is going to bar them from heaven. When Dr. Luther is saying, why are you worried about gossiping in relation to your neighbor, when you've abandoned the first commandment, you've abandoned Christ, which is why you're gossiping about your neighbor. Yeah, right. Drive him right, right, right back to you're, the first You're table. focused on the symptom of the disease rather than the disease itself. Right. And so, yeah, it's a small temporal injury, <laughs> which then turns into an eternal one. Hmm. Watch out. And the world can't do that. that. Only God can do that. Right. right. And this is, I, I think this is a good point of clarification then that when we forgive others and we annihilate, we, we engage the self-annihilation, that's self-annihilation in the way of the gospel. Mm-hmm. That is, I'm not important. What, what my needs are don't matter. What matters is that I forgive you for Christ's sake, that I give you the same gift that I received, which is total and absolute, limitless, measureless. And I can't help but do that. And I can't help but do that. Exactly. Versus... 
self-annihilation in the way of I refuse to forgive you. And therefore, I end up condemning myself. Right, because you put your place yourself in the place of God. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so in a certain sense, nobody can judge me, but God is true. <laughs> but then when you say it publicly on social media, you're inviting people to judge you. You've already, well, and you've already said. I'm, and you've already I'm, judged yourself yeah, by saying I'm, that. Yeah. I'm not subject to judgment. That's right. right, I'm not subject to judgment, which is a judgment. <laughs> it's like saying there are no absolute truths. That's kind of a statement of absolute truth, actually. Hmm. Hmm. So Luther continues, watch out, O man, you do not betray him, but instead yourself and not forgiving him. You make for yourself the real injuries, which the whole world is not able to do. Next to the crass hater of the neighbor, Luther places the more subtle gossiper, who under appearance of love of neighbor inflicts damage as a witness. That's why I love his explanation of the Eighth Commandment in the Large Catechism. Because obviously, or maybe not so obviously, but from my reading of the Eighth Commandment and the Large Catechism, this is a problem that Luther is faced with daily. This gossip, this mild gossip? Well, the Eighth Commandment of tearing down our neighbor and destroying our neighbor's name and reputation mm. in the name of God. Because remember, of course, Dr. Luther has been excommunicated. He's a heretic. Yeah. And so therefore he is – and the 1500s is when propaganda, as we understand it today, really got its footing, found its footing with the printing press. The Germans were experts at gossip – I mean at propaganda – and there's a there's a book that came out last year, I think, or maybe the year before, called The yeah. Brand Luther, and talks about yeah, right. You know, how, how it's a Luther, good book, really good book. Luther yeah. is really skilled at at oh, uh, marketing so <laughs> yeah. his ideas. Yeah, and you know, it's a comparison that maybe some people aren't comfortable with, but Luther was great at coming up with names for his enemies. Yeah, that would stick, kind of the way that Donald Trump does it. Well, and that's what I was thinking about because I had a one of the catechumens give um, their little essay on the Eighth Commandment yesterday, and then yeah. I brought up I brought up the that particular Twitter feed uh, for Mr. Trump, and mm-hmm. of course, then I pointed out to them, you know, by me questioning, you know, yeah. his integrity or whatnot because of the way right. he damages others' reputation, I've done the same of him to his reputation exactly. I said, well, if he hasn't, he left, which was kind of a comedic way of saying that, <laughs> right. Well, and uh, like, again, Luther would say things like uh, Eck the Dreck or Dreck the Eck. Mm. Dreck Eck or Eck the Dreck. And Dreck is a German word for feces. And it stuck. And Eck was never, never able to escape that term that was assigned to him by Luther. And so people would call him Dreck. Even even his own friends would mock him and, and call him Dreck. And Ouch. yeah, he, Luther was effective that way, though, that he was scatological in his humor. And yet when he affixed that to another person's name, it just kind of stuck. He was really good at that. And it helped that he had a printing press in his basement so he could constantly perpetuate this yeah. in his own writings and so forth. But that we see then that in the 1500s, it's just as common as it is today. And so we can say social media has made it worse than ever before. But I think that's kind of relative to the time and the context, because if you go back to the 1500s and the pamphlets that were published daily, countless times daily by both sides, right? it was just constant vilification of each other. It was constantly destroying each other's names and reputations and constantly tearing down the other person and saying they're not Christian, they're heretic, they're the devil's agent. And it divided the church. Are we saying that Luther was... Uh, as much an offender of this as as his enemies. Uh, have, yeah. Have you read against Hans Wurst uh-huh. or the Jews and their lies? Yeah. Yeah. No, he was good at this. And he did it in the name of religion. He did it in the name of defending the gospel from the public attacks of the devil. Yeah. And so he felt justified in attacking the Jews when they didn't convert. He felt he felt offend, you know he felt justified in attacking Vorst for being a false teacher and a theologian who had insulted him and lied about him and so forth. And so in the name of publicly defending the gospel, Luther just tore people apart. 
Yeah. Yeah, and you may have been justified in that, but at, on the flip side. In an earthly sense, sure. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is that, you know, some of the best exposition on the Ten Commandments usually come from the worst offenders. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Why do you know so much about adultery? Uh, yeah. You're right. It opens up for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've it's been like, through this uh, right. once or twice. How do you know so much about gossiping? Or, why, how, you know, why do you complain about how hard it is not to, well... Uh, or about other people's think, gossip. gossip right, right, right. Yeah, it mm-hmm. becomes even... Yeah, like, that's a great point, is that it becomes even more acute when you recognize it in others because you begin to ruminate on it mm. and chew it over and kind of, yeah, it just kind of sits in your mouth and you chew it like a cud. Yeah. Whereas other sins that you're not convicted of in your own heart, they just tend to pass by the wayside. Yeah. And you don't have much to say about them because right. you, know, you don't understand right. them maybe even. Which is the beauty of the large catechism is that there's really not a commandment that I'm not chewing on <laughs> because the way that luther lays it out in the large catechism and his explanations you go and go oh okay hadn't really thought about that before yeah. okay okay great and like we we're saying before you meditate on the liturgy mm-hmm. meditate on the sanctus for example you meditate on the commandments in the same way mm-hmm. which is why luther said the his catechism the small catechism was always intended to be prayed and sung and studied so maybe that criticism of you know, liturgical churches, so to, so to speak, where they're, they're just mm-hmm. doing things by rote or by memory mm-hmm. or by, you know, just following words on a page. I mean, right. that's not a totally unfair criticism. No, is that if it you don't become mechanical for sure. Yeah. If you don't take the time to study the liturgy or, mm-hmm. or specifically the texts that are the foundation right. of that. Right. Um, yeah. You can lose their meaning. It can be like, a, just like the Latin mass was, you know, yeah, to Luther's, right. Luther's day. Right. Because we do it this way, therefore we're right. Yeah, rather than seeing the benefit of the liturgy, right? Which is the gospel, which is forgiveness. Yeah, a vehicle for the gospel, a vehicle for absolution. Mm -hmm. So Luther places the more subtler gospel who under appearance of love of neighbor inflicts damage as a witness. Mm -hmm. They delight in the fall of the neighbor and they wallow in their guilt. With their inner lust, they enter into the sins of other people and roll in strangers' filth. (laughs) That's great. I think it's supposed to be R-O-L-L, not R-O-L-E. I think so. I think so. It's a typo. Like a pig, right? Yeah, roll in other strangers' filth like a pig, exactly. That's such a great line. They delight in the fall of the neighbor and they wallow in their guilt. With their inner lust, they enter into the sins of other people and roll in strangers' filth. Yeah. And it's always in comparison, right? Right. So it's part of that comparison. Well, look at them. They're all filthy. And look right. at me. Well, it's I'm like spotless. It's the old, the old saying, if you lay down with pigs, you'll get up covered in mud. One way or another, they're going to knock you over. Right, exactly. Which, in his sermon on the Great Commandment, then, when he talks about going down into the ditch and not only helping your neighbor who's fallen into sin climb out of the ditch, but that you take him on your shoulders in such a way that when people look down to see what's happening, his sin is in, like, it's just, you can't distinguish it from your own. And so other people will then accuse you of encouraging and affirming sin. Yeah. And in that way, you end up bearing one another's burdens. Right. Because and that's why you, I say forgiveness often appears immoral. And then you get, uh, what do you want to say? Uh, then you get accused of their same sin and, yep. um, right. and you have to bear that. Sin you know? and, yeah, and you have to bear that exactly. And therefore, you're bearing in love for your neighbor, which is a fruit of faith, a fruit of the gospel. The very love that you, you show your neighbor will also be seen as immoral. Mm-hmm. Even when you disagree with them, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, even when you don't share that sin, you know, you don't agree with it or whatever right. it is, um, you still end up because of your what do you want to say? Being bound to that person, you know. Right. You uh, you you bear it. Right. 
Your spouse well, or your neighbor, your friend, whatever. When a, when a sheep runs off because it's scared or just wanders away and it its foot goes in, its hoof goes into a, a hole in the ground and it breaks its ankle, you don't leave the sheep to die because it was disobedient or it ran away and got scared or whatever the reasons may be. You go and you wrap the leg and you splint it and then you pick the sheep up and you carry it home on your shoulders. Mm-hmm. People love you, that image of Christ, right? Right. We love the image for ourselves, And yet when... Christ charges us to be the instruments who carry the sheep home, carry our neighbor in the way of the Samaritan. Then all of a sudden, we are now condemned for, again, uh, affirming or participating in sin. Yeah. It's like they ran off, they hurt themselves because of their own decisions, and therefore they've got to figure out how to get back to the sheepfold or back to the barn because it's their fault and they have to take responsibility for that. There's consequences for what they've done. And there are consequences for what they've done, for sure, earthly consequences and maybe even eternal consequences. And yet, <laughs> we are called to walk with them, pick them up, carry them in such a way that we show them the same love that has been shown to us. And I think... We've talked about this before, but one of the practical kind of implications, say for the example, the third commandment, (laughs) somebody hasn't been in church in a long time, and then they show up, and how do you handle Mm -hmm. that, right? Do you treat them as, now we have to accomplish some sort of, you know, rigorous recatechization or something like that? And maybe that's needed. Um, But on that day, immediately, the... Mm -hmm. The response is, if we're going to listen, you know, to Jesus, maybe the prodigal son or, um, well, that's yeah, a good example. Servant or, yeah. <laughs> yeah, is to just say, welcome home and, right. and here are the yeah. gifts for you. Right. And, and then, yeah, and that's why we take the position of the elder brother in that parable. We want to talk about all the baggage that they're bringing. Right, and, and all I've done. Or maybe how all, they'll, um, you know, damage our reputation in the community yeah. because we welcome them in. Right. And we want to think about all those things rather than just deal with the matter, which is right in front of us, this person came to be forgiven, to hear right, God's word. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So also in this position, Luther submits our behavior to the golden rule, Matthew seven twelve. Mm-hmm. If we wish that our trespasses are not dragged into the light, then we have to respect this also with the neighbor. Oof. Love covers a multitude of sin, something, something. None of the early church or medieval theologians had described the command of God that wants to come to us out of this edition in such a clear-sighted and keen manner as Luther did. Mm. Because with respect to the radical, this radical demand, the gospel must come to shine completely differently if we are not supposed to run aground on the holiness of the command. The conditio, the condition, that backward reference of the divine forgiveness to our human forgiveness must be clarified. And that's where Gregory of Nyssa concludes in his interpretation of this petition with the naive demand. If we thus wish to beg God for mercy and forgiveness, we must then for create for our conscience this confidence that we set our life before the same as an advocate and in truth can say, also we have forgiven those that were in debt to us. Hmm. And really that's the thing then that Luther's after in this petition that he's really after in the entirety of the Lord's Prayer is that in our Christian life, in our Christian vocations, this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, then becomes the prayer that defines us as Christians in vocation in the world. Yes. And, ju- and, just... and in a certain way, then, if you want to talk third use of the law for us as Lutherans, mm. the Lord's Prayer is really the place to discuss that. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Yeah. Deliver us from evil. That all that we discuss in relation to the Christian as new man in Christ and yet 
combating the old man in Adam to die and to be raised daily in Christ through faith mm-hmm. is really what we're talking about in relation to the Lord's Prayer. Yeah. The love that we need for our neighbor doesn't come from inside, right? It's not something right. we drum right. up that we can create. We we can't come up with this kind of obedience that we're looking for. Right. right. Uh, it's, it's given to us, and that's why we pray for it. Well, in a, in a certain sense, I always... I I always I I try and emphasize that we pray for what we have not yet received and we praise for what we have received. Mm-hmm. And what that means then is that when Jesus gives us this prayer to pray, we don't have the words to pray. <laughs> they don't come from that the, they don't originate in us, the mm-hmm. words that God seeks from us. And so the simple definition of prayer as Dr. Na- Norman Nagel would say is we say to God what he first says to us. Right. So he That's makes a prayer. promise and then we right. say, we hold him to his promise. And we hold him to his promise. And mm-hmm. because those words then that we grasp the prom- like the words that are used to grasp that promise don't come from us, they come from God. Yeah. And therefore prayer in and of itself is a searching for words to speak with our Heavenly Father. And knowing this, then our Father just gives us the words. Hmm. He says, don't try and search for the words, you'll never find them. Here, let me give you the words. And then he does. And so that we don't screw it up, he commands us, in Matthew anyways, it's command, when you pray. When you pray, pray like this. Pray this way. Mm -hmm. Luke goes and changes it into a subjunctive, which, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) Gotta be fancy. But with respect to the radical demand, the gospel must come to shine completely differently then if we don't run aground on the holiness of the command. That is, just praying it is a holy work. Praying it five times a day is a holy activity because God has commanded that we do this and therefore we are holy by way of agency again. Yeah. Just the mechanics of prayer. We, it doesn't matter if you believe what you pray or if you ever stop long enough to meditate on the words. It's like I'm, I'm often asked this as a pastor, and I struggled with this before I became a pastor myself, is, pastor, I pray the Lord's Prayer at night when I go to bed, and I often fall asleep while praying, <laughs> and I feel so unfaithful. Yeah. And I have to say, no, that is the best way to fall. How can you – that you're falling asleep in Christ. Right. Like the, the, you're so comforted. You are so caught up mm-hmm. in the comfort of what God has given you to say. What better way to fall asleep than in the words of <laughs> – Jesus' own words that he gives to you to pray. I remember um, when I first started in ministry, I had a, a couple that would sit in the front row, like right in front of the pulpit, and every single week, uh, the husband would fall asleep. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, at one point, his wife pointed out to me, he's like, you know, do you, are you offended by that? Because I know sometimes, you know, he's snoring a little bit and whatever. I said, well, he's in church, and for what, you know, it's... Before I even say a word, sometimes he's 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 got that comfort. He knows that he's he's taken care of. This is where he should be, you know, like a child in in his uh, father's arms, right? Yes, Just exactly. False asleep, 100%. um, completely safe, comfortable, knowing right. uh, that everything's under control. Yeah. Well, maybe that's maybe that's the best way to sum up this podcast. Then is, or at least what Luther's talking about here, and Preters is chasing after, is that mm-hmm. we struggle to forgive because we reject absolution. Yeah. And once we've rejected absolution, that is, we've rejected the gospel, freedom's out the window. Christian freedom's completely out the window. And without Christian freedom, you can't love others selflessly. You can't love as God has loved you. It'll always be transactional. It'll always be a transaction. Exactly. And then we try and idealize Jesus. We turn everything that we do into an abstraction, whether it be our behavior, our worship, our sacrifices, whatever it may be, however, whatever form our holiness before God how right. it takes shape. Well, we transform the even the Ten Commandments uh, away from their chief use of, of accusation into yeah. other uses. Um, right. Palatable, doable vitamins. 
isn't this nice? This is going to make everything better. Right, exactly. Yeah. But the problem is, as we talked about at the beginning, with forgiving yourself, mm-hmm. and it never really has you know traction. Uh, likewise, obedience to the commandments never really gains enough traction for you to be satisfied with what you've done. Versus in the freedom that is opened up for you, the freedom that's created by the gospel, by forgiveness of sins for Jesus's sake, you can, you're free to say to another person, my needs aren't important. What matters now is your need. That's all that matters because I know I'm taken care of by Jesus. I know that that the Lord is going to take care of me. My heavenly father has me. Do you know that? Right. And I'm going to go along with you as far as I can, you know, right with, with respect to my faith. Right. Exactly. I'll go that far. You know? Yeah, exactly. For the sake of love, we can compromise on almost everything. We can go almost anywhere. For the sake of faith, we can't We can't move an inch mm-hmm. because we're, we're, when we talk about faith, we're talking about Jesus. And yet, when we talk about faith, we talk about Jesus, we are talking about forgiveness, life, and salvation, yeah. the primary purpose of God's word. <laughs> well, and that's why it requires that kind of you know self-critical you know, inward look. It's to say, wait a minute, now, is this something that really is a matter of faith or is it just a matter of my comfort level in exactly, kind of an earthly right. sense? I mean, we look at Christ himself and the way that, you know, he would eat and drink with tax collector sinners and Pharisees. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, He yeah. was not a respecter of persons in terms of table fellowship, which was a big right. deal in his big time, deal. right? Yep. Like who you ate with was was significant. Huge. It's still yeah. kind of a big deal. You don't go who sit you down. Who you eat with so- is your tribe. It's your clique. You don't go to a restaurant and sit down at somebody else's table. Um, you know, that would be taboo even today. Right. And that here's Jesus saying, you know, that actually doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a social norm. It's a cultural construct. Yeah. It's not a matter of faith. Right. Yeah. You know? And so maybe we need that same kind of self-criticism sometimes. Too. Right. Because if we can't criticize another person, we'll criticize them for who they have table fellowship with. Mm-hmm. Or who they keep company with, we might or, say. Yeah. Right, yeah, who they keep company with. <laughs> yeah. Because who you keep company with, it, it, that will indicate then what you actually believe and who you actually are as a person. Mm. And so if you hang around with, quote unquote, bad people or naughty people, then you're a bad person. Obviously, that's why you're with them. And you're not one of us. <laughs> right, exactly. And that's what it comes down to in the end is you're not with us on our side of the street. And therefore, you're the enemy. You're the contagion. You're the infection. And we got to just get you out. We have to exercise you. Yeah. And then everything will be fine. But no, I think that's at base what we're talking about when we pray, forgive us our trespasses or our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us or our debtors. We pray that, as you said, uncritically, not mindfully. We don't meditate on it. And therefore, we struggle to forgive others because when the absolution is pronounced to us in our heart, we say, kind of, or no, or 100% I deserve that today, or why not, or how dare you not knowing me. Like all the justifications, all the reasons we come up with for rejecting forgiveness, pushing back against that. So then then we go around having rejected absolution, rejected the gospel, and then we go around just binding other people. Right. And then that's when we get into uh, difficulty in hearing this petition in the way um, that our Lord intended it, right? Because right. It's that, not a gift all of a sudden. Now it's a cross we have to bear. Right, exactly. And and Or like, as we were saying, some kind of game that we have to play. And not other people's crosses, by the way. That's the whole point, right? Is that by not forgiving others, I don't have to bear their cross for them. <laughs> it's rather I have to bear this cross myself and suffer my own cross. It's so hard for me to forgive you. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. It's mm. like, I, I want to forgive. Don't, don't get me wrong. I want to forgive you. I want to be able to forgive you, but. It hurts. You haven't. Dot, 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 reasons. 
And yeah, the, in a, in an earthly neighborly sense, like in relation to abuse, domestic violence, and so forth, hundred percent. In relation to your neighbor, in an earthly sense, you can't yeah. forgive someone unless you've reconciled with them, and you can't really reconcile with someone until they've taken responsibility for something like abusing you, right? And treating you like an appliance or a utensil or something. Yeah, we're not spe- speaking here of you know the fleshy aspect of the whole thing, but rather you can pray, and even in those, you know, I struggle with this for years in the sense of trying to forgive my own father for his abuse of me. And yet in the end, realizing that I was, I was letting my own need to judge him get in the way of me praying for Mm -hmm. the strength and the faith to say, I can't forgive you, but I still recognize you're one for whom Jesus died. Right. And therefore for Christ's sake, I will forgive you because I'm commanded to forgive you by Jesus. And yet in my own heart, I can't reconcile Christ's forgiveness with my need to judge you. And that I can say for myself that eventually caught up to each other in the last five years. It caught up. They bounced out so that, yeah, praying all those years that I could forgive my father in the way of Christ Mm -hmm. and therefore forgive him out of that forgiveness that I've received was a struggle for sure. But as becoming a father really forced that issue, like you were saying about in relation to the Ten Commandments, is that it's easy to judge your father and then you become a father. <laughs> and and then you, as your children grow and age, and I just said this last week, I said, because I have a 15-year-old going on 16, I, I totally understand that 90% of all of my father's anger that was directed towards me as a teenager was justified. <laughs> because now that I have a teenager, I just go, I've become, I've become my father. I've yeah. become my father. I've become Red Foreman, actually. Well, and you see yourself <laughs> in your in your child. I do, for sure. Like, that I recognize that in behavior. my son. Yeah, exactly. You're like, oh, that is super irritating. No wonder my dad was always irritated by me. I, and no wonder I keep responding in the same way my dad did. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And yet, the difference being, rather than rebelling against me the way that I rebelled against my father, that my father wouldn't forgive me. He mm-hmm. didn't know how to say, he didn't know how to ask mm-hmm. for forgiveness so he right. could forgive. And therefore, it just, it tightens the violence. It it causes this ever-tightening circle of violence, the spiral of violence that eventually becomes physical. Mm -hmm. And yet with my son, then, our relationship is not based on a lack of accountability and forgiveness, but total accountability and forgiveness. So that I can say my reaction to you isn't the healthiest, most mature adult reaction. Please forgive me for what I said. Right. Or forgive me for the way that I reacted to this, that I didn't step back and, and... get the emotions under control first. Mm -hmm. But likewise, do you see how what you were saying or doing in relation to this thing that your mother told you to do or in relation to your other siblings, this could elicit this reaction from me because this is really what I'm trying to teach you to do and you're doing the opposite of that. And so, yeah, my son rebels as any teenager does, but his rebellion is the way it's very passive then. It's a soft rebellion because I allow him to do that Mm -hmm. in the sense of I can forgive it and therefore I can open up an opportunity for us to discuss, yeah, this is what teenagers do. And I understand that now being a father and reflecting on myself and in, in you, seeing myself in you. And yet my father responded one way, I'm going to respond in the way of the gospel. Right. So there's still law, there's still rules. You still have to take out the garbage, but you'll take out the garbage in relation to our understanding and enjoying this forgiveness that we both been given as gift. Well, and maybe you've come to recognize that, um, that no child is mature out of the box, right? Right, right. <laughs> and, and that maturity comes not only through correction and discipline, but through failure. Um, it does, through, through struggle. Again, through like struggle. I was talking about in relation to Annie giving birth, is like when you see the struggle, when you go through the struggle and the affliction with by yourself or with other people, 
at least for me personally, it's much easier for me to forgive them. Mm-hmm. That's why the longer I serve my congregation, for lack of a better way of putting it, the easier it is for me to forgive their sin. Right. Because the longer I'm around them and the more I see their motives and their intent, it's, it's fleshed out. You yeah. Know, literally. And I find it easier to forgive other pastors for things that previously I would have judged them for. Right. You know, in the way that they handle themselves or the way they handle their congregation and say, I, you know, I just don't know your situation. <laughs> yeah. In that sense, for sure. For sure. In that sense. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what, right. what was in the past. Um, I well, reckon- and it's not my pulpit. I wasn't called to serve that congregation. So how dare I judge you yeah. for not doing what I would do in my own pulpit? And you may be completely misguided, um, but I'm, I can't stand in that place of saying that you are. Well, um, and again, it turns God into an idea, not an, an actuality, that God is the one who ordained you and put you in that place. Mm-hmm. And if you are being unfaithful, if you're not preaching the gospel... Right, for that, I will judge you. <laughs> well, I was, you know, there's that. I might, I might the, say, um, I'm not... I, but in the sorry, end, God will go remove you. Yeah, it'll get taken care of. He will either give you the desire of your heart so that you fall, which mm-hmm. Dr. Luther definitely talks about a lot. He talks about being puffed, like God allows us to be like a bladder or a balloon that's filled with hot air, and then he pops us when we reach critical mass. <laughs> Pastors full of hot air? What are you talking right. about? And so Luther talks about this in the way of knowledge. He also talks about this in the way of like carnal sins, fleshly sins, is mm. that if, if you want to use the pastoral ministry as an excuse to puff yourself up with knowledge and then become proud and, and arrogant, God will allow you to puff yourself up with that hot air like a balloon, and then he will pop you, and that will be your repentance. Yeah. And so God makes fools out of us all at some point. Yeah. I had someone say, well, you know, uh, knowing that I was serving in, in a vacancy, well, you deserve to have a, a place to preach. I'm like, I'm just happy to have a place to preach, but right. I don't deserve it. You know, right, no. yes, I've, yes, I've been through all the seminary and I'm still right. paying the bill, but that doesn't mean that I deserve to be in the pulpit. Right. Right. You know, that's, that's something the Lord chooses and he can take away too. Right. And, and say, here's another vocation for you. And so I would say struggle and affliction, struggling, whether it's self-inflicted or, mm-hmm. or from others, it doesn't, it doesn't basically give you free reign to preach the gospel because the gospel is given to us by the Holy Spirit. We don't get to choose whether we preach the gospel or not. But it, In the same way, we don't get to choose whether we forgive somebody or not. Right, exactly. But I would say that through struggle and affliction, it does it does create sympathy for others. Mm-hmm. In my experience, anyways, for myself, it, it, it creates in me the need, the want, or just the ability to see in others their struggle, their affliction. And again, not in the sense of like, I understand their motives or their intent, but rather just to recognize this person is going through some stuff. Yep. He, he or she's in the middle of some stuff. They've come out of some stuff. They've been through some stuff. And therefore, what they need is someone to come alongside of them and say, can I help you? Yeah. And then let them tell me how I can help them. But that ultimately, what I refer to pastorally as help is, how can I clear away everything that's getting in the way of you coming to the Lord's table and enjoying the comfort and the satisfaction that is the gospel, that is forgiveness for Jesus' sake? Well, and that's what you've talked about. I think we've talked about this before in regards to preaching that yeah. that really the law that should be preached on that day is the law is, is whatever gets in the way of you hearing the good news, right? Right. The specific good news that's given to you in those readings, perhaps if if you're going to be a lectionary preacher. So yeah, you know <laughs> those dirty lectionary preachers. Well, I'm just saying. <laughs> so you know, here's the gospel yeah. today. Mm-hmm. What's the law that gets in the way of that? What's what's preventing right. us from hearing that as good right. news? And, and that's yeah, the law. like Dr. Nagel says, the law is whatever gets in the way of Jesus being delivered, 
for you as gift. Mm -hmm. And the gospel is whatever delivers Jesus as gift for you. And so when you're reading the Bible, when you're praying, when you're talking with fellow Christians, that's really what you're talking about is what's getting in the way of Jesus being delivered as gift. How can I, as your pastor, your brother and sister in Christ, help clear that stuff out of the way? Um, And usually that stuff is sin. (laughs) Let's be be blunt, it's usually sin. Yeah, but it's a very particular sin at that point. Exactly. And so if you're rejecting forgiveness, what can I, as your pastor, do to walk with you so that you receive forgiveness as gift and you revel in it, you enjoy, you enjoy it, you take comfort from it and you're satisfied by it. Or uh, what's getting in the way of you forgiving your neighbor. Others, exactly. Yep. You know, and it's, it's usually, I would say something very particular. I mean, it's yeah, not, it's not sure. like this generic idea. Well, they're just right. mean, you know, but it, it was a very particular sin that they committed, right. for example, yeah. or, or that you committed against them or whatever it right. is. Right. Yeah. So Focus more on forgiveness, focus with Jesus's forgiveness, and focus mm-hmm. more on God's love in Christ. And then you can focus on your neighbor as the hands and mask of God. And then you can, again, how do you want to phrase it? That you can enjoy the gifts of forgiveness, life, and salvation. You can enjoy love, selfless love. You can enjoy being charitable. You can enjoy putting the needs of your neighbor ahead of your own needs. You can actually enjoy considering yourself to be of no importance. I love right now simply meditating on how I can be more present for my, for my neighbor mm-hmm. by asking them questions about themselves rather than waiting for my opportunity to talk about myself. Despite our podcast here. Where... I was going to say, I have a podcast though. So that really helps kind of fill like, it, it, you know, uh, exhaust that This is your opportunity to monologue. Right, exactly. It's like, and then I can go to the gym and be like, I'm here for you now. I've emptied myself out. <laughs> I'm glad to to serve that that small purpose that's, that's right it's scratch that itch you're so. kind of coin operated you know i just i, I get to <laughs> feed it <laughs> coin operated. that's true uh yes i know i know how to push your buttons that's right <laughs> all right i gotta take my kids to see avengers so let's uh wrap this up and get out of here right, you have anything else uh well one thing that you should uh maybe try to uh enjoy is fear of the walking dead not The Walking Dead, but the, oh, yeah. the spinoff, Fear. It's, it's been weak, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have no idea what's happening in the current season. Somehow, uh, they just like took a huge left turn from the end of last well, season. Well, they changed the writers because the producers changed. They changed the writers, and then they moved the location. They did, and they did a crossover, one of the characters. Well, they're eventually going to merge the two shows. That's the plan. It's like in sense. season nine or ten of The Walking Dead, they're going to merge. Because the uh, Fear of the Walking Dead is becoming more popular. And that's why they moved them, I think, to the Gulf of Mexico, and eventually they're going to move the whole. Because my ah, brother right. works. My I told you, my brother, um, he works on the set of the Fear okay. of the Walking Dead because it was in Rosarito, Mexico, is where they filmed it. And uh, he was assistant art director, and so I get oh, yeah, the inside did, scoop I, yeah, on all we this did stuff talk about that. Yeah, uh, so they moved it to the Gulf because they're eventually going to merge the two shows together. And so what's interesting about it is that both shows. Um, at their heart, it's not really about zombies. I mean, it is, no. but but that's just a device or a vehicle. Yeah, and it really is about like what we were talking about here with forgiveness. I mean, there yeah. is, it's they're finding it very hard to forgive one another, uh, to reconcile. You always have groups right. within and without that are that are at odds with each other. Right. Well, because that's they always end up at a war. They always end up in a war because um, they have no fear, love, or trust of yeah. God or for one another. And so it's right. really kind of an interesting character study of what happens mm-hmm. when when all mm-hmm. the things that we put our hope and trust in get torn Fault. away from yeah, us. torn away from us. You exactly. know, whether it's family or society or government or whatever. Right. Um, how do you find a way to live together? <laughs> mm-hmm. And it turns out that it actually has to be just ignore that which would mm-hmm. tear us apart and, and find a way to 
um, love one another. <laughs> Which is a nice jumping off point to talk about the new Perfect Circle album, Eat the Elephant, which I've been listening to nonstop, mm. which is that exact thing that all of the lyrics that Maynard sings in the new album are essentially about how we're doomed societally. Yeah. Uh, and he, you know, the, the, even the song Talk Talk, which is about Christians and the superficiality of saying, we'll pray for you, and then oh, they yeah. do nothing. He even quotes James, um, of course. But uh, his dad's a Baptist, devout Baptist. He grew up Baptist. Oh, really? Didn't know that. Yeah, that's that's why he, he, he... Behind every person that you meet who's super anti-religious, there's often a parent or a guardian who was super religious. Wow. And like Nietzsche and Feuerbach and those those atheists in the 19th century who grew up the children of pastors, we get a guy like Maynard who... Yeah, a lot of that Baptist upbringing kind of formed him yeah, as an adult. Out. It comes yeah, out. it comes out for sure. But it, it, musically, it's a really fantastic layered album. I love it, and uh, definitely their best album, I think. But uh, yeah, same thing. Like with Fear of the Walking Dead, Eat the Elephant is just a critic, like a criticism of well, when politics betrays us, society betrays us, and we betray ourselves. Mm-hmm. What's left? Technology is a big thing that he attacks to in the song Disillusioned um, is just, as he says, you know, when we give into our animal desires, what's left. It's kind of a despair. Um, yeah. It, it just seems like we're at the beginning of a new century. And I always think about this the other day too. If you look back at the twenties and thirties, 1920s and 1930s, we're kind of going through something similar in the yeah. sense of a lot of debauchery and hedonism, mm-hmm. a lot of optimism and yet couched within constant war and fighting for territory and boundaries and shifting loyalties. And, um, and so I think that it's just the turmoil of the time that we're in the middle of something and it's working itself out. And in 10, 20 years, we'll be on the other side of it. And we'll be able to look back at this time now and say, okay, this is what, this is what was happening. This is why it happened. And this is how it all shook out. But I think we're just, we're right in the middle of it and everybody's just trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah. And it's an, it- not everybody is going to um, be as hypercritical, I suppose. I mean, there, there's a right. way to see a way through, and, and cr- maybe our faith can help with that. Uh, mm-hmm. I learned that um, Peter Do- uh, Pete Doctor works for mm-hmm. Pixar, um, like Monsters Incorporated. Oh, okay. we mentioned Wally, and so he, wrote, yeah, well, he was responsible for the story of Wally, Toy Story Two, etc. Um, he's actually Presbyterian, and uh, you know he doesn't try to make them explicit morality tales or um, or like Christian fables, right. you know, in the way of C.S. Lewis or something. Um, but he can't help it, you know. And you, yeah, of course, there's there's an optimism in in, the, in mm-hmm. those works, you know, like with Up, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that 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 is like a, a little light mm-hmm. <laughs> in the midst sure. of this world yeah. of darkness, you know. Well, it's like Cormac McCarthy at the end of the road. It's really the only book he wrote where at the end of it has any hope. Because most of his books are actually very despairing. <laughs> uh, that end. book devastated me. <laughs> the road is a devastating read, and when you get to the end, you're no like, matter, just regardless of the fact that there's hope at the end, don't eat him, please. Right, exactly. Right. Well, just the fact that Christians save him. Yeah, it's a very interesting book for McCarthy, but uh, it's unique which, that way. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, all right, that'll do it for me. Good. Um, and uh, you're good. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Come back next week for a brand new podcast. We'll go back into Peter's, talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper and the sacraments. And as always, I hope you pass the audition. See ya. Do you like what you're listening to? Higher Things podcasts are free for you, but they aren't free to produce. 
please consider supporting the Higher Things podcast, as Lutheran as it gets, Gospeled Boldly, and The Black Cloister. Check out www.higherthings.org support for more information. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. You summoned me, Dr. Frankenstein? Indeed I did, Igor. I wanted to tell you that I'm retiring from the business of monster creation to do something that requires even more genius. What's that, Doctor? Coffee roasting, Igor. There are so many wonderfully complex variables to busy my intellect with. Try the end product, Igor. It's brilliant and delicious. Not bad, Doctor. But have you considered just ordering your coffee pre-roasted? Preposterous, Igor. No one else has the scientific attention to detail that this enterprise requires. What about coffee by Gillespie? Coffee by Gillespie? Christopher Gillespie is a master at selecting high-quality specialty coffee beans that are as sustainable as they are tasty. And to roast them to their finest, he uses traditional techniques combined with the latest technology. Something a scientist like you should appreciate, Doctor. Indeed, indeed. But the coffee, Igor, is it any good? Everything about coffee by Gillespie is done with taste in mind. Gillespie even ships your coffee directly to your address, so it doesn't lose its delectable flavor sitting on the store shelf. You've convinced me, Igor. Coffee by Gillespie clearly has me beat for coffee new how. Where may I get some? Just go online to gillespie.coffee and order any time. Let it be done, Igor. But opt for the decaf. Frankie can be a handful when he's had too much caffeine. <laughs> coffee by Gillespie. It's brilliant and delicious.